I'm Aaron. Welcome back to Three Right Turns. I have a great episode for you today as we're going to talk to Stefan Lacko, host of the podcast Is This It? about his years serving aboard a missionary ship, his ensuing education and career in international affairs and global development, and his thoughts on how we can more responsibly partner with less developed nations. I'm really, really excited to get to that conversation, but first, it's been a while since I've considered any feedback on the show, and I wanted to get the one in particular that uh, came in my mailbox the last few weeks. Dave here took me up on my standing offer to answer questions or any concerns that people might have when listening to the show or just about anything uh, relating to the topics we talk about here. And he sent his question to three right turns at swizzbold.com, and here he is. Dave begins, I had a few questions regarding your show about white privilege. And he has uh, questions in kind of two parts here. Part A, first, I agree with your take. There is such a thing as white privilege as well as financial privilege. How much of how you feel about it might be guilt, though, or virtue signaling? I know you're self-aware enough to answer this question honestly. And if you answer none, then I'm absolutely willing to accept that because I believe you're an honest man. Well, thank you for that praise, Dave. Um I can only speak for myself because I imagine that there are some who are kind of motivated along, you know, racial and other types of social economic justice by some feelings of guilt or shame. But I've worked pretty hard to get through my own feelings of guilt and shame. When I went through a period of losing my religion, right, I had to go through a lot of those feelings like and regret thoughts like, man, I really wasted the first 30 years of my life. What am I going to do? Or, oh, I made all these promises and commitments to friends and family and is in good faith. And now I'm breaking them. Well, why wasn't I smarter? Why didn't I see this sooner? Why didn't I get a handle on this uh, before all these entanglements uh, came into my life? And at the end of the day, everyone kind of makes the best decision that they can with the information that they have available to them. And when you have things like social or when you have things like racial justice, let's say that we are all playing a game of Monopoly and halfway through the game, you found out that the person playing the banker was paying you an extra 10 or 20 percent every time you passed go. Now, would you feel guilty that you, through no fault of your own, you didn't ask for it, but you found yourself the recipient of this kind of cheat or, or, or hole in the system. Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't, but I think the true test of character is that once you're made aware of the unfairness, do you do something about it? If a player getting less found out and started complaining to the banker, would you mind your own business? Would you kind of play dumb? Would you ignore their complaint? Would you try to convince them that, hey man, you're just not working hard enough? Or would you take that other player's side Would you be maybe willing to pass around some of that monopoly money to the affected players to kind of level things out, balance it out, help them out? Or or maybe you don't even become aware of it yourself. You just hear some other player complaining that, you know, I'm only getting 180 bucks pass and go. And you know that you're getting 200. Do you take that seriously? Is it your reflex to kind of get defensive and angry at the suggestion that maybe you got an unfair advantage? Uh, would you look into it? Would you complain that like, well, you know, maybe I have a little bit more money, but man, my luck on landing on properties is, is been rotten. So kind of it all balances out. 
Or maybe would you get with the other players and decide on your own that, you know what, everybody's getting $200. That other guy's crazy. He's making things up, trying to game the system, looking for a handout, didn't manage their money well enough, etc. Because, you know, sometimes that shit happens. I guess at the end of the day, guilt or shame is kind of on you to process and figure out what to do about. Because... I think we'd all rather have a system where people felt zero guilt and shame and were just ready to roll up their sleeves and beat the cards and help out and cooperate and deal with injustice um, together than have a bunch of like guilt ridden people who don't do anything and don't ever speak out. At least that's my preference. And hey, if you need some ideas on how to process guilt and shame, that's kind of what we do over on One Weird Trick, the other Swiss Bold show that I do. And we'd be happy to get some uh, ideas and advice and share the stuff that's kind of worked with us on that. Now, part B, you also say, as a small business owner, have you attempted to put your beliefs in action? I know that Bald Move recently added Cecily. Do you consider her a minority candidate or did you hire the person that you know and are familiar with? Which I believe a lot of hiring managers do or have done. Same with adding Jim's wife to a podcast. Did you try to hire a minority to podcast in that position or support minorities and media? As a white man that hires for and manages 20 different retail stores, I'm sure I've been guilty of hiring the person I'm comfortable with because of the race. I can't recall a specific instance, but I'm sure it's happened. I've also gone out of the way to hire a minority or female candidate if their experience and education are equal with that of a white candidate. All right. Well, uh, first off, I really appreciate the email, Dave, and uh, uh, hopefully we can have a, a back and forth or I can tell you some answers here to make sense. But uh, a while back, if you might recall, someone sent in a piece of feedback uh, that I read where they were listing off suggestions on how people can be more socially conscious. Um, And she opined that, for example, she wouldn't work for a company that had no minorities on their leadership team. And I pointed out that that sounds great, but there are many places in the country where that would be literally impossible. Like if I wanted to work for a place that had minority leadership in my old hometown, I'd either have to drive over an hour to get to a company like that um, or just not work at all. Because where I'm from is literally 99.9% white, period. So I think that what you can do depends on where you're at, your position in life, where you live, your community, etc. Now, Jim and I, we've talked about this on an Empire Business series that we do on Bald Move uh, for the club members. But right when we sat down and we were starting Bald Move, we came up with this document that was kind of our a, a guiding principles document where we both talked about the things that we'd learned up to that point in our careers things that we thought companies could do better, uh, principles that we wanted to bring, ideas that we want to bring to our company. And, you know, lots of different things, like what we considered selling out, how we would grow the business, what kind of level of transparency is appropriate uh, with our community. And part of that is dreaming what our company might look like if it was five or 10 or 20 more people. And we realized you know, maybe you could justify having an all white dude company if it's like three or four or maybe five people. But at some point, and I'm not going to say what that point is or what point you might feel the quote unquote guilt or shame, because uh, I think that depends like we talked about. But at some point, you have to realize that this pattern, if it continues to repeat and it's just another white guy, another white guy, another white guy, another late 30s, another 40, early 40s white guy. It's starting to say something about you and your company. And not just that, it's limiting your perspectives and your experiences, which brings me to the topic of virtue signaling. Because 
why would you consider hiring a woman or a black man or an Asian trans woman or any kind of minority? Is it to have a certain percentage of a makeup in your company so that you can say, see, we're doing good. We're not racist. Nobody could say we're racist. Our advertising manager is a black guy. Or is it because you want your company to reflect the makeup of a community and a customer base that you participate in so that your strategic and customer insights are aligned and have genuine value and you don't have any blind spots you're suffering from or you're uh, dealing with a lack of insights that you might have into that community and that customer base. Because I think that virtue signaling has become this kind of weird slur because it's supposed to mean a cynical ploy to get attention and kind of mind share by hypocritically endorsing values and ethics that you or your company don't personally reflect and endorse. But nowadays, I feel like it can mean anyone talking about any topic that touches on any kind of justice in a thoughtful or reflective way. And even that bad type of, you know, virtual signaling that we talked about is, is not terrible. Like I think about the people that like flip their shit. Uh, with that one Gillette ad about how men can be better men. But at the end of the day, even if every person on the Gillette board of directors turns out to be a 55-year-old white dude that cheats on their wives, slaps their employees on their asses, thinks dames just ain't cut out for management, they still put out into the world a message that we should be careful what we teach our boys, that we should think about how we make women feel with our actions, and that men should hold each other accountable for the actions, especially in their peer group. So, I just don't see virtual signaling as a big problem per se. It's only a problem if it's like the only thing a person or a company does. It's like the bare fucking minimum of what we should expect people to say the right things. But I think to be meaningful, it needs to be backed up by action. So finally, yes, I think you can absolutely make judgments to myself, to Swizzbold as an entity, bald move as an entity based on what topics we talk about, what voices we platform, how we comport ourselves as a community and as a company and how we grow from here. And I'm always open to ideas on how we can do things better. So again, uh, appreciate your question, Dave. And if anyone else has questions or ideas on anything that's been burning or bugging them, uh, the offer always stands. Send that in to free RT at swizzbold.com. I don't always respond swiftly. Certainly not all of it makes it onto the show, but I'm still in this kind of glorious stage of podcast development where I can still read and respond to just about 100% of it. All right. I'm very, very, very excited for this next interview. Several weeks ago, you might recall I went on to Stefan Lacko, uh, the host of Is This It's podcast, a show that features honest conversations about purpose, fear and opportunity. We had a great discussion about my religious past and my political development and thoughts on the world today, which I'll link to that episode of Is This It in the show notes. But in the course of our conversation, I found out that he might have had an even stranger religious upbringing than I did because he spent his entire youth serving on a missionary boat that toured the world, spreading the gospel of Christ and bringing much needed civil and medical technology and expertise to people and places uh, that were sorely in need. Not only that, but he has since gone on to have an extensive educational background in international affairs and global development. I heard that and I knew I had to have him on. So we're planning on covering a lot of ground in this conversation and this interview, uh, talking about growing up on a mercy ship, his work combating child trafficking and sexual abuse, as well as his thoughts on how developed nations can help be better partners with less developed ones through the lens of dependency theory. All right, Stefan Laco, thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Uh, I wanted to to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to the Three Right Turns audience uh, and tell us about yourself and maybe your podcast. Is this it? Um, and you can go at whatever detail you want, and I'll just drill down. Yeah, this sounds good. Yeah, so uh, I started that podcast. Is this it? Uh, about two years ago, uh, really just kind of stemmed from this desire to want to have more honest conversations about. Uh, fear and opportunity and just how to get uh, from here to there and and just asking that question like is this it both in a very specific like maybe career-wise like is this it is this what I want to be doing with my life but then on a more meta-narrative level too like is this it like is this reality this world is this all there really is or is there something beyond this uh what's interesting is when i started the podcast i had a very different view (laughs) of of some of those things than i do now so it's uh it's been interesting even just how i've evolved over the last couple years um but yeah we just started up season two we had you on a couple weeks ago which was uh really great i've been a huge fan of bald move stuff and three right turns so it was great having you on the show so yeah it's uh it's been an adventure for sure I mean, that's one of the selfish reasons I started this podcast is like there's a there's a few things I want to refine and like kind of test myself on and, and hopefully learn some things, too, because that's uh, I mean, I've been doing podcasting for 10 years and I've learned so many things. Uh, one of the things that I learned about you is that we have a kind of common history, but also a distinctly different history. And that I grew up in a weird kind of religious situation being, being raised as Jehovah's witness and you might be able to trump me. Uh, You (laughs) did boat based missionary work off the West coast of Africa, correct? Yes. So let's talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. So my parents uh, were missionaries uh, for this organization before I was even born. Uh, So they were living on this ship with like 350 other people uh, going around the world. They'd be in like Europe or the United States for like six months of the year. Then they'd go into like Central America um, and then later West Africa for the other half of the year. So, uh, yeah, I was born and pretty much brought onto the ship before I was a year old. And for the first, yeah, decade and a half of my life, I was uh, a ship kid, (laughs) you know, like it was it was my normal. Like I thought it was super weird having like people having a backyard and neighborhoods and all that kind of stuff, because to me, like all my friends lived on the same ship with me. There was about about four kids in my grade and like, you know, 50 kids total on the ship. So there was, there was a lot of us. And, um, part of that was really cool. Like all your best friends being just like a stone's throw away, but it was also really weird being in these different cultures and not really feeling at place anywhere. Uh, so yeah, uh, but it was very, uh, it was very evangelical outreach where they were, uh, looking to not only provide like physical, uh, relief to people like building houses and doing medical work, but also like spreading the good news of Jesus Christ to, uh, to everyone around the world. What kind of religion was it? Was it pretty mainstream Christianity? Just like with yes. a really? Yeah, it was mainstream Christianity with like a super, like super evangelical, right? Uh-huh. Uh, so it was non-denominational and it was international. So there was people from like, my family's from the Netherlands. Uh, I was born in the Netherlands, but the vast majority of people on the ship at the time were Americans, but, uh, but still you would have different Europeans and uh, a few even from, um, you know, the lesser developed countries of the world. Uh, but yeah, very like the, the, I'm trying to remember the exact, like the motto or mission statement. I think it was like the two hands of the gospel, uh, both being like physical healing, but then also like the word of God, like salvation mm-hmm. type stuff. So uh, even like the, the look to the future as in like 
the long future beyond our death, like the life hereafter was the main goal. Like if we can't save everyone physically, at least we can save them spiritually was kind of the mindset. But there weren't any other because like, you know, um, that's such a out of mainstream way to practice, you know, the 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 teachings of Christ, you know, like he invited people to become. Uh, fishers of men, but like, you know, go doing it off a boat seems pretty on the nose. There weren't any, cause like Jehovah's, yeah. <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses, like, you know, we, uh, Aryan heretics, we don't believe in the Trinity. We don't salute the flag. We don't celebrate Christmas or birthdays. Uh, we don't believe Jesus died on a cross. We believe he was right. died on a stake. Uh, there weren't any kind of like unorthodox, uh, well, because there was people from so many different like streams within Christianity, it was kind of like, uh, kind of boil down to the the most basic parts, and and mm. I think like you talking about like Jesus speaking of fishers of men, man, the 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 types of things we talked about and were even taught in school were all about like like Jesus walking on water. There were a lot of water themes, you <laughs> Very know, like it was, yeah, and like even like some of the paintings that you would see around the ship because it was like a, it used to be an old ferry liner, uh, so it was a really beautiful ship. Uh, but they had these old paintings, and it was like a painting of like a sailors with like a big old storm right around him. But you see like a mirage of like Jesus behind him. I'm sure you've seen the same oh, one yeah. with Donald Trump in the Oval Office. And sure, like Jesus sure. is hovering by. It was the same one, but a kid trying to get through a storm. So like, it was just, it was a lot of imagery around water and, um, and yeah, the, the very physical nature of Jesus, like going out into the world and, and helping people in a very physical way, but also looking to their spiritual well-being as well. So it was it was definitely one of those things where, like, I wasn't really presented with an alternative because oh, literally yeah. every single person on that ship was a not only a Christian, but the type of Christian that's willing to literally sell all their possessions and go to the far corners of the world to spread the good news. No, you know? so, so it's, it's literally heeding Christ's call. Give, give up yeah. everything, follow me, yeah. So, like, I was super impressed with my parents to be willing to do this. Like, I myself, uh, I mean, I followed with, like, missionary-type work well into my 20s, but I was never willing to, like, go full-time into some other country. You know, like, sure. I wanted to – I wanted some some normalcy after I got off the ship. And I uh, – yeah, I still applaud them for being willing to do – like, I mean, my mom, like, she really believes that – we need to go and, and, and help people out. They really, because they're human beings, because God created them, they're valuable and they deserve, you know, to be taken care of. And so she, it was her mission in life to make sure she could help as many people as possible, which is a noble cause. But oh, yeah. it's uh, definitely something that I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I would uh, be willing to do the same. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> well, Stefan, why the boat though? Because I can see like doing like, you know, going and, and bring, and uh, did, um, before we get to the why the boat, you, you mentioned you guys did some, you know, you did missionary, but you also did some outreach, like with uh, maybe education and medical. Did did you have like professionals, like like doctors? Yeah, and- so that's actually the same answer. That's why the boat. So the boat had like operating theaters on board. Whoa. So we would go bring people like they would like when we get to the country, they do like a big medical screening day. And, and some of the big things that they would do would be like cleft lip, cleft palates, mm. uh, cataracts. And then, you know, like you'll see in some like old pictures and stuff like that, people with these just enormous tumors mm-hmm, um, yeah. on their faces. Mm-hmm. And so like we had one of the world's like the 
the maxillofacial sur- surgeon that has done like the most huge operations um, is is still working with this organization, and he's been doing it for for decades now, like my entire life. And so, uh, so they would bring people onto the ship uh, to do that healthcare type work. They would do dentistry as well. And they would set up clinics in different villages, but all this stuff was like in the cargo holds of the ship and they would bring it out or we had the operating theater. So like, we'd also have like a big well drilling rig that we would take with us from Europe into Africa. Then when we got into whatever country we were in, we would start digging wells and with this big old drill, you know? So, so the ship was like the vehicle to move all this stuff and basically to bring the hospital to the people since we couldn't bring all the people to the hospital. And this is like early eighties too. Um, and nineties. No, that sounds really cool. It's like a very, very Christian Thunderbirds kind of situation where you're deploying (laughs) or like vehicle Voltron, you're deploying drilling machines and hospitals and yeah. Wow. So that's a, that's a considerable, that's a big boat. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, it was like uh, 300 plus yards long. Wow. 14 stories. It was massive, massive. I mean, 350 people lived on it. So did it you was, have, yeah, when, when, when did you, was you and your family all in like one quarters or did you have separate quarters or? When, when I was little, um, I have two older sisters. We all shared a room until I was about eight. And then it was like they needed their own room because they're right. older than me. So I got, uh, I had a closet transformed into a bedroom, which it was literally like, three quarter length bed. And that was it. <laughs> that was my room. And then later when I was like, a, like a teenager, like a young teenager, like 12, 13, uh, they had a set my sisters cause they were like high school, like 10th to 12th grade. They had their own cabin mm. and me and my parents shared a cabin, but yeah, it was weird. Like, yeah, super weird. <laughs> what did, uh, did, were there any like scary situations? Cause it sounds like you're doing like transatlantic crossings. Are there like storms yeah. that were scary or? Yeah. I, I mean, it's hard to remember. I was, I was young and I have a pretty shitty memory. So it's hard <laughs> to remember some of it, but I remember like some big storms with like massive waves that, but like I didn't get seasick because I was used to it. I grew right, up on it. You're thing. born on it. Yeah. Um, but I remember once there was like, it was probably more than once, but like we had a fire when we were out in the middle of the ocean. And so we all had to like go to our muster stations and we were waiting to see if the ship was going to be okay or if we were going to be in lifeboats. That was pretty scary. Wow. Uh, but you know, nothing came of it, you know? Yeah. You guys but, were yeah. sound like well-equipped and well-funded too, to be doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, and they're still going, it's a well-oiled machine. Like it's, it's pretty impressive. They, uh, they do the, the kind of the function of it has changed a little bit, but it's still um, a Christian organization. That's Do you care to name healthcare. it or is it like that's called mercy ships. Um, mercy and ships, okay. if people are interested, I highly recommend them check it out. Um, I actually, after I graduated um, with my undergrad, I actually worked for them again. It was the first job I got out of college was working and doing nonprofit work with them because I knew them and I could get back involved. And I was still, you know, very active in my faith at the time. And, mm-hmm. It was something that I could jump back in and I knew and I could help out with. So, yeah. No, people can check that out. I mean, I have very little problem with people actively, uh, you know, um, practicing a Christian lifestyle. Um, right. And it sounds like you guys are doing a lot of good. I'm wondering, though, like what kind of reaction or you might be too young to kind of register this. But what kind of reaction do you get in the 20th, late 20th, early 21st century when missionaries pull up to like uh, an African nation, you know, with a long history of colonialism and right. interference? I mean, like, was it like? Or is a skepticism or people happy like, oh, no, this is the boat with the hospital. Like what what was the kind well, in, of. Yeah. In the early 90s, people, for the most part, again, from my perspective, being a young kid, were super excited to have us also because we were bringing in like relief and aid work, you know, mm-hmm. so there was a, a huge 
um, welcoming of that. Like I said, the mission has changed quite a bit since then. Now there's not near as much of a, like there's, there used to be like evangelical programs with mm-hmm. the ship where they would go out and they had a drama team and a dance team and all this kind of stuff. None of that really takes place anymore. <laughs> yeah. Oh dude, I was in a thing called ship's kids where I was singing and dancing to all these crazy songs with all these sweet moves and yeah. uh, bright colored costumes. It was, I, pretty I, I was in a Bible drama or two yes. in my days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but so, so for the most part at the time it was, there was a lot of welcoming and now we kind of come in at the, not we, I'm not with them anymore. It's uh, old habits. Yeah. Um, they uh, they come in at like the request of the government and the government will bring them in because it, it, it provides, you know, like some pretty high, high leverage surgeries that require skilled doctors to come in and sure. uh, do work. I actually interviewed one of the surgeons um, who he, he's not permanent with him. He, he works out of Harvard. Uh, he just goes for like two months out of the year. He goes to whatever country they're in. So he's just in Cameroon and does these these maxillofacial surgeries and that's kind of how he gives back to society like he's like i'm a surgeon 10 months a year i'm making good money and now i can give back and it's for him i don't necessarily know how much the faith aspect plays but as a surgeon it's how he can give back to people so still really cool mission and they do really good work and for the most part it's, it's welcomed but i'm sure there's pockets in the various cultures that are just kind of looking at it as like more of this white savior mentality but sure. i know that they try really hard to to, to not be that way so I wonder because this seems like such a uh, an interesting and neat and kind of like Robinson Crusoe type experience experience um, like like a, like a true ad- adventure at a very early age. Um, yeah. Why does a person get out of that? Uh, how how do you go and just like damn? I'm going to do this is going to be a multi generational affair. I'm going to have kids uh, that are boat babies and they're going to be yeah, in yeah. the ship's kids thing and I'm going to you know, drill wells and so how, how do you decide that that's, that's not for you and adjust to like uh, regular boring life? Well, here's the thing. So it takes a long time. Like I've been, I mean, I'm 38 years old and as of last year is the first year that I haven't been doing nonprofit or charity type work. So it wasn't always um, evangelical Christian type stuff. Like it was in the beginning, like it it switched and became more of a, a secular type work for me. But even just uh, that draw or that feeling of like, man, I need to be doing something was there. Like growing up, I mean, I was in like 50 plus countries before I was like 12 years old. Like it's just crazy. I don't remember half of them or more, but like just being around the world and seeing all these different cultures and and experiencing different things and just seeing how other people live and experience life, I was kind of ruined for the ordinary. So I went to high school in Texas. That was bizarre. Uh, Talk about (laughs) culture shock. Oh yeah. Um, And then I went to the university back in the Netherlands for a year uh, studying business. I did not enjoy that. And then I moved back to the States and I joined a, a different missions group where I was doing all kinds of stuff. And then I was like, you know what? I, I still wanted to be able to help people in the world, but I realized like without a solid education, there's only so much I could do. So I decided to pursue a degree. So I studied international affairs and got hooked and then, you know, got my master's in, um, what was my master's in the global development and, uh, peace studies is what the master's degree was. in. so still all in that same vein of like, man, I need to, I need to be doing stuff. And even as my, um, my faith changed from being like super evangelical to whatever it is now. It, uh, 
that desire or that feeling of obligation. And for me, I'll be honest, a lot of it was guilt uh, uh-huh. that I mean, I need to be doing something to help people who are um, in far less fortunate situations than myself. Like I need to be doing something. So um, one of the key areas where it, where it really struck me was I, in kind of my more formative years, we kept going back to Sierra Leone, which um, is was made popular from like the movie Blood Diamond. Sure, you know? yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we were there like right around the that time period. And it was really rough. And one of the big elements that was going on was this whole idea of like child soldiers. And mm-hmm. we'd have kids with machine guns that were getting drugged up so they could go kill people. And it was just horrific. And so that was one of those issues that was like, man, I need to do something about this issue of child soldiers. So that was like, whenever I had to write a research paper or do like a thesis or that type of work, a lot of it kind of fell in like trying to figure out how we can solve the problem. So eventually uh, the last nonprofit I worked at, I was a director where we were doing anti-trafficking work uh, where a lot of the kids, a lot of the people we were helping were children who were, you know, being forced into like uh, basically slave labor. So it wasn't like wow. soldiery, but, but still like slave labor. And that was in um, the countries of Liberia and Benin. So yeah, pretty, pretty intense stuff. But yeah, a lot of that is based in that childhood where it's like, you don't feel like you are allowed to leave because like, it would be so selfish of me just to go and get a job and make a ton of money. That sure. was my mindset. Um, and uh, yeah, so kind of felt stuck in a way. I want to talk about like kind of pivot into the, uh, you know, away from the religion into the, sure. the politics. And you mentioned something that uh, um, kind of led you away from the evangelical path um, and which was civil religion, the concept of civil religion. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So when I was in undergrad, so I went to CU, which uh, so University of Colorado in Boulder, which is a just a great campus and really progressive thinkers there. And I had to take this class on civil religion. And all of a sudden, like the dominoes just started to knock each other over. And I had this realization of like what I had viewed as like Christianity um, in a lot of senses was was actually just civil religion. It was this religion that is more uh, Americanism or American Americanity instead of Christianity, you know, where hmm. we have our our symbols, our sacred texts, our, our, our origin stories, our sense of purpose and values and all that kind of stuff. But it's not actually Christianity. It's, you know, the Declaration of Independence. It's the flag. It's the national anthem and these feelings that we get around that. And I realized, like, you look at all the different presidents that have been around, like, they're always talking about this this God and even like this formation of the country happened with this idea of, like, inalienable rights that we get from our creator. And this realization that uh, so much of what I had been kind of leaning on to support my belief system and and what I thought was actually uh, something that was created, you know, as, you know, is no surprise when many people talk about this, you know, like the the role of religion is to help direct and control. And, And just realizing that was one of those linchpins for me that was like, maybe I need to start questioning some of my issues of faith because uh, I could really see kind of the power dynamics uh, from a political perspective that kind of took place around it. Even like um, it was like everyone knows like the United States motto is like in God we trust. It's on our money and all that kind of stuff. That didn't come around until post like post communism. Like yeah, when the Cold War was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like we needed something to rally the troops. And what other way like what's the best way to to show a, an othering of, of people and create a villain than by calling them godless like God, we have god yeah. on our side it's like the crusades 2.0 you know 
it sounds like you're getting to something that um, I, I like. I appreciate Dan Carlin, his hardcore history and uh, his his infrequent common uh, sense episodes. But he says something about like he wants to be an American that has an America that lives up to our marketing ideals, like our marketing mm. brochures, you know, yeah, um, yeah. that like, you know, those things about truth and freedom and justice. And we, we live up to them regardless of when it's convenient. Uh, we have our ideals and our interests and we put our ideals over our interest at some at, at point. It sounds like that's something that kind of appealed to you that, uh, uh, you definitely have this mission of of, of giving back and, and helping those less fortunate, but also seeing how that could be weaponized and turned against people. Um, you have you, you talked about like your studies and you've done a lot of like war, uh, international studies and, and stuff. That's it's essentially like a degree in Peace Corps. Right, uh, right. And the one thing you intrigued me uh, when we were uh, last talking is you talked about this thing called dependency theory, which I'd never heard of. Yeah, I've done the barest amount of, of research uh, to. To, to facilitate an interview on it, but I wondered if you would tell us about uh, dependency theory and like what what it is and what it's what it's uh, aiming to uh, to 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 answer from a societal question perspective. Sure, sure. So, and we can go like as deep or as shallow as as we want to here. There's like, I mean. Entire PhDs can be spent on the issue, but basically, like you can think of uh, dependency theory as like neo-colonialism. So we all know, like the history of the world is, is one based around like power, the the haves and the have-nots, right? So dependency theory uh, is more of a, a description of what has taken place rather than prescribing what should take place. And like I think the easiest way to to start talking about dependency theory is just thinking about like the four factors of production and, and what that means. And those of course are like land, labor, capital, and entrepreneurship. And so like there are like every country is going to like very few countries have all four of those, right? Mm. Like usually if you have a lot of land and a lot of labor, you don't often have a lot of entrepreneurship because that more constitutes like agriculture and natural resource extraction and stuff right. like that. And, uh, and then where you have a lot of capital and entrepreneurship, uh, a lot of times you don't have like that is taking place because you don't have the land and the labor. So that's where you'll see like more industry and tech innovation and stuff like that. Um, but, but why has it been shaped the way it has is kind of the question. And so um, if you look at like modernization theory, which, uh, you know, Walt Rostow, we were talking about him right before we started, he talks about the stages of economic growth and in his modernization theory, which he, uh, I thought was interesting. He, he kind of, the, the subtitle for that was the non-communist manifesto. So it's already, you know, very politicized. Right. right? Um, but he says like every country goes through the same five steps of development. And so basically we all started off at the same place. The United States happens to be here. And it's basically, it starts off traditional, which is, you know, subsistence, subsistence agriculture. Um, and that's about it. Like no manufacturing, not much tech, nothing like that. And then you go to the preconditions for takeoff. And that's where you see um, a rise of entrepreneurship and people starting to, to move forward. And then there's this period called takeoff. And that's where you see urbanization, um, Agriculture changes from being subsistence to commercialized. And so this is where you see a lot of the world, um, especially around the time where he's writing this, you know, industrializations um, happening. Yeah, exactly. And then you have maturation, which is like slow down 
like the slowdown of economic growth takes place, but that's because there's a reinvestment in, in the economy. You have tech innovation, international trade starts coming on, diversification of production, all this kind of stuff. And then the big one, which is where everyone wants to be, of course, is mass production for mass consumption. So this is where you have technical development, the government's able to start giving back to the community in, in terms of like social welfare and security and goods and all this kind of stuff. And he's, he's basically saying that every country goes through this. So well, that's, the, so the theory then is that you could then look at every country and say, like, even if there was one that's in the first stage, like presumption will be they will eventually get to yes. everyone eventually around the world will get to the mass production, mass consumption Yes. You know, and then we're all we'll all yeah, we'll, everything will be everyone will be able to enjoy a modern middle class lifestyle. It seems, exactly. it seems like that, that's the theory. Yeah. OK. And so and, and and not only is it like prescribed, it's also what people want. So there's an assumption that that's also the desire of all these countries. So that there's kind of two problems there. right? So then, so then if you're a more developed country, you have almost like an ethical, moral obligation to help these lesser countries, like anything you can do to speed that process up and get them to that end goal is, is by definition good. Right. So, so this, so that's, that's a nice segue. So, um, so because of that, they come up with these, so the rich countries, you know, in the global North, let's say Europe, United States, they come up like, especially like right after uh, World War II, we've got like all of Europe in disarray. And, you know, the rest of the world is also like much of the rest of the world is also very poor. You have them get together in Bretton Woods uh, in, the, in the northeast of the United States. And, and they come up with these ideas of, like, hey, what can we do? What can we create to help uh, grow economies, boost production and have like more stable conversations around like trade and all this kind of stuff. And, and you come up with the creation of um, the World Bank and the uh, uh, International Monetary Fund, right? And so this is post-war and this is like when the, we started the gold standard and all this kind of stuff, this idea of like kind of helping secure the money supply. And so they create the IMF and World Bank and that becomes important because- To invest in these other countries right. behind us in the developmental scale. And so if we want to talk about, you know, let's bring in some pop culture references here. This is kind of like the Jedi Council saying, okay, yeah, let's take on Anakin. Let's make Anakin into this great Jedi warrior. Sure, there's some some troubling areas around him. Maybe he's a little angry and uh but we can we can use him for good, right? And well, also the other thing is like I was I was wanting to jump in and make a sci-fi reference, and that's just yeah. like almost the antithesis of like the prime directive of, of the Federation, where they have also societies go through these rigid hierarchies, but they won't even deal with you while you're pre-warp. Once you get warp, then it's like okay, you've developed enough for us to then reach out and say, hey, you're not alone, blah blah blah. But it's very crucial not to fuck up your de- natural development by interfering before that stage. This seems like the opposite. Let's interfere. Let's speed things up let's accelerate you know right. it's like let's land on this caveman planet and give them warp drive so that they can participate in this you know pan galactic federation thing for sure but but here's the rub right so you put you put the guys up in washington where you know the world bank and imf and these different organizations are based out of washington dc like what do we know about powerful rich people what do they tend to want to do with their money like they want to protect it. They want to grow it. They want to become more powerful and more rich. Mm-hmm. So while like you might say, and and I think you're right to hope and assume that like it would be the richer country's prerogative and imperative to help other countries advance and progress. 
What dependency theorists are saying is that the exact opposite is what actually took place. The reason we see underdevelopment in much of Latin America and much of West Africa, especially around the 80s and 90s and before, of course, as well. Um, but this is this is this idea that and Raul Prebish and T. Antonio Dos Santos kind of come up with this this idea of dependency theory is they're saying what you say, what Rousteau is saying is the obvious progression of growth is faulty. What has actually happened is there's been a split in the world between the core and the periphery, or if you want, you can call it um, the metropole and the satellite. And the core is all the richest countries of the world. It's the United States, it's Europe. And the periphery are what we used to call like the third world nations. Third world was really just a term used like they were not communist or capitalist. Yeah, I think third. a lot of people don't understand it. So first world nations yeah. were like United States allied with Western, you know, capitalist. Right. Second world was communist states. And the yes. third world were those caught in between. Right, right. So like much of Africa and Latin America, right. Um, so so we'll just call them the global south for this for this conversation. Uh-huh. Um, so you've got the global north versus the global south. And so what the dependency theorists are saying is basically everything the periphery does is for the core, and the core is dependent on the periphery to grow their wealth. So basically the periphery, remember we were talking about land, labor, uh, capital entrepreneurship, they're rich in land and labor. They've got tons and tons of people and they've got tons of land to farm. So they're making raw materials, whether it's, you know, minerals or fruits and vegetables, whatever it is, they're selling it to the North. The North takes those things, add that adds value to it. So they take your raw materials and they create a car and then they sell it back to the periphery and the core is making all the money and the periphery is giving away all their value. And so if you think about it, like in like really basic terms, like, so like some of us got our stimulus check. I still haven't gotten it. I'm convinced I'm never going to get it. I think I've been put on a list. (laughs) So, so how many bananas do you eat a week? Let's say right now. I, I'm not a banana man, but let's, 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 let's uh, have a flight of fancy. And I'm a one banana day guy. I'm a, that's a seven, seven banana per week. Okay, so say you get your stimulus check, you get, you know, your $1,200 check. How many more bananas do you think you might buy with that? Not a lot because they go bad. Yeah. Right. So, so this idea is like, but, but if let's say you have some technology stuff in your house, like if you get uh, your stimulus check, might you buy a new phone or a new TV or something like that? So the idea is the raw materials which are being produced in the periphery, bananas, let's say, your desire for more bananas does not increase when your wealth increases. Mm. You're going to continue to buy the same amount no matter what. However, the items that have value added to them, your Apple TV, your iPhone, whatever it might be, as your income increases, you're going to purchase more of those items. So you're directly investing in the things that are being made in the core rather than the periphery. And so what these guys were saying is that the the world system is based upon the dependency of the core on the periphery for all of these natural resources that we extract from them. And this goes back, you know, like you can see this through slavery. It was a very obvious thing. Mm -hmm. We just stole people. Mm -hmm. And then with colonialism, we went down there and stole their land. And then with neocolonialism, we're taking their, through trade, we're taking their raw materials, bringing them to our places, building up 
the value and selling them back to the rest of the world while we create, while we gain all the profits. And the reason that this is able to continue is because both in the core as well as in the periphery, these nations are controlled by the wealthy elite. Um, and they have personal interest in making sure this this system continues because they're the ones making the money. So like the guy running the IMF isn't making $70,000 a year. He's making $700,000 a year or whatever the amount might be. And he has personal interest to make sure that these things keep going. So what happened then, um, and like in you know, the Washington consensus in 1980, where they were like, wait a second, why, why is the this whole modernization theory not working? Why aren't these countries in Latin America and West Africa and other places, why aren't they growing? And they're like, well, we need to help them. We'll help them by giving them loans and giving them foreign aid and all this kind of stuff. But, and this is where Anakin turns into Darth Vader. It's this idea of, we're not just going to do what's best for you. We're actually going to put restrictions in place that say that you have to open up your markets to trade. You have to do this. You have to do that. Monetary restrictions on money supply and all this type of stuff in order to receive these benefits um, of, of of aid and, you know, debt forgiveness in some instances and stuff like that. So they became even more dependent. Um, the, the periphery became more dependent on the core and had to allow them in to their markets so that they could get these things, which just undercut any sort of development. And, it was a real problem. Let me ask you, because I've, I've heard. OK, so this is the, the this is the one side. Um, a lot of times there's a rebuttal of like, we oh, get, sure. Yeah. You know, yes, yes. Uh, we these these uh, the global north has not done exactly right by the global south. But what you can't deny is the standard of living increase, like the fact that there's less people in poverty, the fact that, you know, we there's been schools and hospitals built, the fact that these places are electrified and have uh, high, you know, high speed communication. Like, look at all they, they've we built train tracks and and uh, we built roads and infrastructure. Yes, we've we've extracted value, but we've also given them um, like uh, we, we've we've done the thing that we said we we're going to do. We have accelerated their development far beyond what they would have been able capable with with no interference at all what is the like i guess rebuttal to that yeah so i think i think there's there's two different ways to to come back um at that and and one would be you know first admitting that's that's probably true uh, a lot of the growth may not have taken place um but there's there's two kind of two ways to look at it so um jason hickel actually came out with an article he uh, works at the university of london he just wrote a book called uh, The Divide. It's a brief guide to global inequality and its solutions. And he talks about like how, you know, Bill Gates recently tweeted out like this picture kind of saying exactly what you're saying, like child mortality rates are the lowest they've ever been. Poverty is is down. There's such huge change going on in the world. And do you remember um, the Swedish guy, Hans Rosling? He had a couple TED Talks out with the bubbles that would move across this page showing the link between wealth and health and all this uh-huh. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what what this guy does, what what Jason Hickel does is he looks at these and he says, okay, what you're doing is kind of picking and choosing your data points. So for one, there's no real data before like 1981 about the poverty levels in West Africa. There just was no data out there. It's even hard to get a lot of that data now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and secondly, like this idea of a poverty line being around $2 a day is completely unrealistic. It should be more like $10 a day. Also, you have the factor of China. Like if you take China out, because you can't really count them, they, they didn't grow in the same way. They, like we, had, we, the global north, had nothing really to do with uh, China's development. So you take out their numbers. And then if you look at the data, you realize that 
poverty has actually, this is his argument, is that poverty has been stagnant at 60% for the last four decades. Uh, since my birth, you know, in 1981, basically, uh, things have pretty much stayed the same. And he talks about like those bubbles on like Hans Rosling's chart, like those are not like real incomes. That's like your average person's wealth, which as you and I both know, like the average American is kind of a difficult thing to look at because of the the high amounts that the 1% Hold. So like in a country yeah. like Zimbabwe that has like a GDP of like, let's say 16 billion, 10 billion of that is owned by like less than 50 people. So it's kind of an unrealistic way of looking at that. So so that would be one rebuttal would be. And see, uh, this is uh, this because I always like to think back to science fiction. This always made yeah. so much sense to me because like how many movies have we seen where aliens come down and they make a deal with the world government to like, oh, we we're out of water. We're, we're going to take your water, but we're going to build spaceports and we're going to give you advanced medical technology and we're going to do all this stuff. And like, how are those, you know, how are those relationships usually portrayed? They're usually portrayed as, pre- you know, nakedly predatory, because right. what happens I- is like uh, like in the case of V, <laughs> the, the, the formative show that I grew up on in the 80s, uh, turns out the aliens are actually eating us, too. And I just take your yeah, ocean. I missed, I missed all the great 80s shows because oh, I live yeah. in Africa, you, man. You rip off the terrible rubber mask and it's a lizard man and they're eating <laughs> us. Uh, but but also, like, even if it's in the truly benevolent sense of like, yeah, they did all that. As soon as like uh, 99% of the world oceans are gone, there's no more right. resource to extract. The aliens just disappear. Yeah. Um. And then you have these societal collapses. And also, like, it'd be one thing if, like, uh, those riches were being shared among. But imagine if, like, only the president and all the congressmen got exactly. got all the alien money. And they are the ones that got the alien health treatment. So they're living longer, longer. Like, it's just like if you start thinking about this in terms of Stargate, V for Vendetta, uh, Independence Day, like, it, it's I, I don't know. It always seemed to make sense that, like. We who are extracting the resources um, are getting the better deal than the people right. who are maybe laboring and getting paid as a laborer, but certainly are not getting the, you know, uh, uh, the, the they're not seeing that trickle down to, right. you know, the, the common man and woman and the families. So I started watching Narcos Mexico a couple of weeks ago and like that one scene in like in the first season where. Like he like one of the cops goes undercover and shows up to work in one of the marijuana fields. Uh And you just see like these poor peasants going in and working really hard all day. And then it cuts to the next scene. You got this richest man in Mexico who's benefiting from all of their labor. It's exactly the same thing. For sure. Pablo Escobar. He's got these poor peasant farmers stomping the coca paste and they're getting blisters on their feet because of the acids and stuff. And they're living (laughs) in huts. And, you know, he's got a fucking zoo with hippos and tigers and you know, gold toilets and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then the the other rebuttal that I wanted to say is just if you look at the example from Southeast Asia and what were classified as the Asian tigers. So basically what they did, so this is like South Korea and Taiwan and stuff like that, mm. is they completely ignored the IMF and World Bank. And they said, listen, we're not going to listen to your rules about what we need to do and what we can and cannot do. We're going to break the rules and we're going to do something called infant business protection so like they put increase they put extremely high tariffs on any goods that were being shipped to there so that people would buy locally and they could build their own economy so like south korea like you think about like kia like 
do you think Kia could have competed with Ford? No, because the, the United States would have been able to like just bomb the market with all these cars and they could sell, they could undercut the price on them so that Kia could never get lifted off the ground. But instead, South Korea said, no, we're going to make it impossible for you to sell cars here so that we can have time to build up this business because we realize that if we want to be an economic player, we can't just be exporting rice. We need to be making heavy manufacturing. We need to be doing tech. We need to be doing. And so they just kind of ignored all the rules that, you know, Latin America and Western Africa couldn't. And that's how they were able to develop. So I wonder uh, if we wouldn't have, if the global North wouldn't have intervened in Africa and Latin America, maybe they also would have had this ability to create their own business if given enough time, but been a prime directive and and they would have all their resources intact and they would have been able to exploit them for their benefit as they see fit rather than. So I guess my question to you, because like this is something I think about a lot, you know, in terms of like, uh, you know, how we get to a Star Trek utopia um, where we're all working together and we're post scarcity society. And, and I always come back to like, um, uh, you know, where I part with the, the died in the world socialists and communists is like, you know, if I, you look at the world's money supply and the world's GDP and you divide it up evenly amongst, uh, you know, seven to eight billion people, numbers are pretty fucking grim because it turns mm-hmm. out there's a lot of the world in, in sheer poverty. And for right. any kind of like truly globally cooperative, you know, resource redistribution, um, ever give everyone like this fantasy of giving everyone a solid middle class lifestyle or, you know, that's like the ba- the base that we, we talked about. I talked about that with real Republican last last episode. We have to get that G that that the global domestic product up. So there's a bigger piece of the pie. Uh, what is the best way to become partners with the global South or mentors or to, to, to give them help without exploiting them? Or is there no way to do that with that's not exploitative? Well, I think that's, I think that's the question that people are asking right now. I think it's just recently, like in the last few years, even that people are realizing that this whole like modernization theory isn't working. Uh, there's a lot of truth. Now, dependency theory kind of was uh, kind of based in like communist Marxist thought. So there was, it was, not really received well, but I think um, you kind of see the, the premise behind it. Uh, so, so yeah, where do we go from here is, is the question. And I think people are really struggling with that. And, and it's gotta be a blend. Like I, I think what part of the problem is, is people are so polarized right now. Like if you ask the average, um, you know, middle-class American about their thoughts about capitalism and socialism, like they believe that capitalism is the great, hero and and socialism is is evil you know a lot of people still think that not realizing that the united states is actually a blend of the two and we often don't do the most capitalistic thing because it doesn't make sense and so one of the questions that i ask myself a lot is what is the role of justice within capitalism you know like because we do have this social ethic you know again come going back to our civil religion talk from earlier that that is kind of built into our society like where we we do think things are unjust like we don't have child labor even though it would make sense from a strictly capitalist way to have as many laborers as possible so who cares about it so we put certain things in our our society and our and our culture to kind of 
bring about justice. But yeah, what does that look like on a global scale? And and it's a really tough. Especially since like a lot of the gains we've made in terms of the environment, in terms of child protection and stuff, like we've essentially outsourced that misery to other countries because it's now the other countries. Yeah. Uh, You know, we like to complain a lot about China and how much they pollute. But one of the reasons China pollutes so much is because we offloaded so much of our manufacturing to them. Um, right. And you look at some of these other countries where you do have child laborers and you do have unsafe working conditions. You have and con- environmental degradation sure. is a huge problem too. And it's, and even now, like we're talking, like we just this last week, like the price of oil is, is in the, is, in the basement, it's the lowest. It's, it's ever literally been. negative forty dollars. They will tell. They will give you forty dollars if you can take a barrel of oil off their hands. So, so what as are we going to do? A, a strict capitalist perspective might say, "Man, we should switch to renewable energy and invest in that technology and start growing that because not only is it good for the environment, but it's going to make financial sense." But because of you know lobbyists and political interests from you know oil companies. Is that actually going to happen? And it's uh, it just makes you. I mean, it's hard for me to be optimistic. I'll be honest with you. I'm a bit of a pessimist. It's um, it's not. It's, yeah, I, you don't become progressive to be uh, super happy and optimistic about everything. It's it's right. uh, it's a bit of a bitter pill to swallow at first. Yeah, so it's tough. So I I I don't know where we go from here. I guess that's the that's the real bummer of a question. But I think you know, um, one of the good things that has happened is like we definitely experienced far fewer wars now than we have in the past. And so the, the economies around the world are more safe. The coronavirus has really screwed things up, Mm -hmm, but, but from an FDI perspective, you know, like foreign direct, direct investment where, you know, startup businesses and in other countries and stuff like that, like that's one of the models that has really worked, you know, like actually not just exporting rubber from Liberia, but actually going over and, making a rubber plant where you're actually making the value added products there that can be sold in market and exported. So you're not exporting raw materials, but you're exporting things that have more value because that's how you can grow an economy. Uh, stuff like that is, is, is where you can start, I think. Yeah, no, I, that's, you, you know, uh, I feel like a lot of times uh, this podcast doesn't have necessarily the answers. It's just more like, hey, can we for far too long? We spent most of our I think uh, the the 20th century um, asking the wrong questions and maybe going off faulty data sets. And uh, the first step to like doing better is knowing better and, you know, taking stepping back and be like, man, are we more like partners in this relationship or are we more like the predatory aliens from V? Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, like what do we do with these countries once we've extracted resources? How do we treat, do we try to keep them under our thumb or do we try to lift them up? Um, or is any kind of interaction, uh, an an exploitation harmful, uh, to their development? Should we be more like the Federation and have a prime directive where, you know, a country has to get to some sort of industrial capacity on their own before we start to trade? There aren't any, cause there aren't, there aren't any easy answers because there are, enormous benefits to global trade um and there's also enormous risks and drawbacks um right and uh, unfortunately what's happened and you can you can you can see this at a at a macro to micro level all over the place but what happens is a lot of the benefits are consolidated amongst very few people 
and a lot of the the downsides and the drawbacks are spread spread over a, a large population and you can see that like right now with uh what i've seen so far going on at the corona relief in the united states is a lot of this like trillions of dollars is going to very small or a very small number of businesses and and people and like there's a lot of people that still haven't got their relief checks a lot of people are struggling to file unemployment and, you know, you can see that same thing with like, uh, you know, writ large across the globe where, you know, countries are getting the benefits like United States, Western Europe, um, and then countries are left holding the bag. Um, and we didn't even get to like some of the predatory debt policy in the IMF right. where, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, like these countries are taking out loans to industrialize for our benefits and then, you know, struggle to pay back those loans and and the interest rates are high and then they suffer penalties or they have political upheaval because of it. It's um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a sad, depressing, depressing story. Colonialism, yeah. postcolonialism, neocolonialism. Yeah, and so you can see why I felt obligated to uh, invest a lot of my, so far, a lot of my life has been invested into trying to help in some way, you know, because, yeah, it's like, what do you do? Like, I, I don't know how to solve this on a macro level, so I guess I'll just jump in and try to do something in the meantime. I, I, I no longer do that now, but that was a lot of that, like I said, a lot of that was from that that place of guilt, you know, and and I think, like, there's so many myths that we we live with, you know, like, even, like, the myth of independence, like, like that's, I think, one of the, the creeds of American, like, nationalism is, like, we're independent, like, that's just something that is a, a value of Americana, but mm -hmm. it's like, well, are we ignoring the things that we've been dependent on, like the slave or the domestic worker for a long time, like women and children working in the house, like all these things, like or that we the, won the, our independence largely because France is in a pissing match with Britain, <laughs> right? And if that right. hadn't have been, if that geopolitical situation hadn't have been at that right time, we probably would have been one of the many crushed rebellions and still be uh, uh, have uh, old Queen Elizabeth on our our dollar bills. Our pound right. sterling. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just so, so much, so much layers, so many layers to these things that it's really hard to, uh, to unpack. Uh, but you can really see how we are like, like a global community and, and the importance of, of looking out for, for others. And I think even though we don't have answers, I think understanding like kind of where we are and how we got there. Cause I, man, I can't tell you how many times people are like, I don't understand why people keep bringing up colonialism. It was so long ago. Uh, people shouldn't talk about the same thing with slavery. Like you like, that was so long ago. Why are people still bringing that up? And I, I don't think people understand just how impactful that continues to be generations later and because the effects are, are still there. Especially since us, when it comes to colonialism, the exploitation is, is still ongoing. Um, right. you know, maybe not in the scope as, as, as it was, uh, before, but like, you know, you look at the history of the sheer amount of fucking around we did with South American politics and, you know, how much we exploited, uh, uh third world countries and, and Africa. Um, it's, it's crazy to say that like, uh, I mean, this is, this, we've, we've, we've talked about this in terms of civil rights in our country. I can't remember who said it, but it's like, uh, a lot of people want to pull the knife out. Uh, from your back, like you stab someone in the back, pull the knife out and be like, hey, look, I stopped stabbing you. What's your right. problem? It's like, OK, <laughs> yeah. can I get some stitches? Can I get some antibiotic? Can I get a hospital bed to to recover from the stabbing that you inflicted on me? Like just because you pulled the knife out doesn't mean that the damage is automatically going to heal. 
Um, And people are resilient. Uh, Countries and communities are resilient. It's amazing that it works as well as it does. But, you know, it's that's not by any stretch of the imagination what you call justice. That's right. Uh, Yeah. And and justice is one of those things that is, I think, not talked about enough when it comes to the nature of capitalism and and political economy in general is like where what what role does just does justice have and and what can we do about that well i mean it's like that's the thing it's like i i go back to this like there's all these uh research i mean you can watch videos where you have a monkey two monkeys and you know they're doing a task they're pulling a lever and they get paid a slice of cucumber um and every they'll pull those levers all day long and slap each other in the back and it's all kumbaya but one monkey gets a grape for pulling that lever and the other one gets a cucumber and that that cucumber monkey fucking gets pissed starts <laughs> yeah. want to tear the system down because we have this sense of fairness yeah. embedded in us it's like we we grew up to cooperate and to be like when someone in the tribe wasn't pulling their weight to be like the fuck this isn't fair uh but it's so weird that we've got so many wall like we can uh all the all the pressures to contribute are there but the the pressures to divide the spoils of that evenly um you know people you know like uh that's impolite to talk about you know don't don't talk about how much you're getting paid don't don't talk about how much your boss is getting paid well Stefan, it's been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, telling us about your life and uh, illuminating uh, some alternatives to theories of progress uh, that we probably grew up uh, learning and hearing about and and seeing uh, in in all of our media. Uh, I really appreciate and and especially appreciate how much uh, you've tried to to, to give back uh, directly in in your life. I think it's uh, inspiring. Um, so thank you for coming on. How can people follow you? Where can they get in touch with you? Uh, and how do they get, is this it? Yeah. So you can follow me on like Instagram and Twitter. It's at stay fun. like S T A Y F U N L A K O stay fun. Um, is this it? You can find that on pretty much any, any place where you find your podcast, you can find it. It's uh, I know it's on iTunes and Spotify, Stitcher, all those places. So yeah, uh, give us a listen. It's, it's been really fun. Actually, uh, just this last week, I uh, had a great conversation with the president of a anti-trafficking organization that does amazing work in Southeast Asia. So it was a fascinating conversation kind of along these same lines. But uh, yeah, so definitely give it a listen. It's a it's a fun time. Have I been saying your name wrong this whole time, Stefan? I said I've been saying Stefan and I'm so, so sorry. So I I roll with whatever people say because it's an unusual name. <laughs> yeah. And again, like I told you before we start, like I say my name a little bit differently than my mom does. So, uh. <laughs> like, so who is right? It's all subjective. <laughs> Mom's usually right, unless it's my yeah, mom. But that means I'm not saying my own name right. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, Stefan, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Stefan, thanks so much for coming on to the show. I really appreciate the conversation, and I hope everyone listening did too. If you want to learn more about Stefan, I have links to his podcast, his website, and his bio in our show notes. And if you're interested in the organization that he grew up in, Mercy Ships, I have a link to that organization as well. That's going to wrap things up for us on Three Right Turns for another two weeks. If you have questions or comments for me or Stefan, please send them in to Three Right Turns at swizzbuild.com. I'll make sure they get to where they need to go. Or you can use our sub at reddit.com slash r slash swizzbuild to discuss our episodes with me and our growing community. If you enjoy the work we do here at SwizzBold, we would really appreciate your support at patreon.com slash Thank you to all the patrons who've already supported us. In particular, thanks to our Fred-level patrons, Angela Morano, Kira Grusho, Jared Harrelman, Arvin Rao, Laura Luthi, and Markon. 
Sess and I will be back next week to share more weird tricks to find greater satisfaction in life, relationship, sex, careers, and much, much more. I'll see you right back here to talk more about politics from our unique three right turns perspective in just two short weeks. Until then, have a great week and try to take it easy on all those pre-warp civilizations out there, ours included.